Listeners, readers, I'm so glad you've tuned in. Welcome to the Fox page where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll end up with a richer understanding of the title at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, editor, and PhD in literature. And for those of you who don't exactly traffic in rare books, Foxed Page might be something of a mystery. But foxing is simply those little brownish spots that you see on the pages of really old, beloved books. Today, I'm diving uh, in with you to a book that is not, in fact, at all old. It's very recent. It is, though, very beloved. This was a book that I had some reservations about, largely because it is uh, a book about teenage gamers. And yet it was a book that I found so compelling and so important that I have just been uh, endorsing it left and right and giving it away to everyone I know. So as always, the lecture today will be broken down into three chunks. In this first session, this first half hour, we're going to be talking about why it is I think you should read this book. We'll be talking about Gabrielle Zevin's uh, just a brief moment about her biography. And then we're going to dive in to this really, really smart really engaging prose. As always, in the first section, there won't be any spoilers. In the second and third, we definitely will be talking about plot points. So you probably want to finish tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow before you listen to the second and third installments. So again, this is a book, I mean, when I wrote up my little recommendation for it, and I was sort of trying to think of who this book would not appeal to, there are very, very few people on that uh, potential list in my brain. So I'm really excited to dive in. Let's get to it. Okay, so the question of why I uh, am suggesting that you read this book, why I'm giving this book such a strong endorsement. Well, I can tell you that if you are at all resistant to the idea of um, 400 pages about video gamers, um, I can tell you that I was right there with you. Why does this book, in fact, reward such close reading and why are we reading it and why am I such a fan? Well, in part, it is simply because the book is so smart. It's incredibly well constructed. It's thought provoking. It's a book that stayed with me for quite a while after I read it. It was really surprising in a lot of different ways. There's an enormous amount of complexity in the book. There's also an incredible amount of heart. Um, there are not very many books that have me deeply unsettled. And I will say that at one part of the book, no spoilers, um, I was actually listening to it. And at that point, the audible version of the book, um, the, the main narrator breaks off and it is narrated by a male voice. And that male voice I was driving at the time, it was so upsetting and so eerie and so moving that I, that I actually literally turned up the speed at which I was listening to it because I really needed to get through this part because it was, it was really emotionally very um, upsetting, which honestly is so great. It did not, the novel did not end on that note. So I can tell you right then, um, you know, that, that in some ways this book is very optimistic. So, it, it, but, but the point being that this is a very emotional novel uh, which is really an accomplishment given how incredibly intellectual and kind of rigorous the thing is. Okay, quick bio um, on our incredible, uh, super intelligent Gabrielle Zevin. She was born in 1977 in Los Angeles. It's funny, she's only eight years younger than I am, but um, all of the photos of her, which um, you can look, you can see some of them on my Instagram account or um, in the slideshow that I will have at the end of the YouTube uh, lecture, 
She's so cute. She's like the cutest person ever. And she looks so young and so adorable. Um, so I was surprised to know she situated herself during one interview between Gen X and the millennials. Um, and she at the time was, I think, um, referencing different video games that were popular at that time. But it was funny for me just because I do think of her as being much younger. She does a very good job in this book of portraying youth. I mean, she just seems like someone who's very young, very young at heart, very intelligent, and, and I was happy to know that she was a little older than I thought, because I think some of the wisdom and some of the emotional depth really comes from, you know, a significant amount of life experience. She was, she grew up in Boca Raton in Florida, which surprised me a little. I don't know why. Sorry, Florida. Um, and then she went to Harvard where she studied English. She met her, um, her partner there, Hans Canosa, who she mentions uh, in the dedication. They met at Harvard. He also, um, he is a movie producer and has produced several different things. I think they worked together on her screenplay. She also wrote the screenplay of a very successful novel of hers called The Storied Life of A.J. Fickrey. So I believe that's the one where he was the, um, he was the, the, the director of it. So they really seem like a really awesome power couple if their creative output is any uh, indication. She lived in New York for 10 years. She spent some time working in Japan and then moved to Los Angeles, where she has been for quite some time. She's written 10 novels and four screenplays, four screenplays and counting, because Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is being developed. I don't know if it's, I, I think it's a miniseries or maybe it's a movie. Anyway, it's, it's being developed for some sort of visual media. Um, and she is, in fact, writing the screenplay for that. I've read one other novel by her, which was The Storied Life of A.J. Um, uh, Fickrey, which I really enjoyed. It was a little uh, sweet, a little kind of cute in some ways. And, and at times, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is also sweet in some of the same ways that uh, A.J. Fickrey was. But I, I, um, I remember really liking that book. It also um, looks like an adorable movie. I have not seen it yet. Uh, but Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow has... A, 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 you know, an intellectual scope and some depth that, that I think distinguish it in my mind from my memories of A.J. Fickrey. We're going to go ahead and dive in. Um, the background noise today is brought to you um, by a couple of dogs, a couple of dogs and actually a cat because I'm upstairs where the cat lives. So if you uh, hear some, some meowing or any snoring or the occasional scritch scritch against a door, uh, my apologies in advance for the for the menagerie. So those of you who are here in order to become better readers, you have heard me say this time and again, the most important thing is simply to pay attention. So one of the things that you can do is to consider the title of a book as almost sort of the first line of the text. Certainly um, a title of a chapter or the title, you know, if you're reading poetry or short story, that title um, will take on even more significance if it's a smaller piece of writing. But in this case, with Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, we have section chapter headings that will come later. Um, but, but first, we're going to take a look at the main title of the book. I love the title Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It's so bold and it's so good. Again, I love the cover art. The cover art, importantly, is by Hokusai, who is, um, it's just this absolutely gorgeous Japanese woodcut. And importantly, that is the art that Sam and Sadie go on to use in Ichigo, which I think most people know that, but I just, I really love the addition of it 
It's dramatic. It's sort of impending doom, um, but in lots of ways, it's deeply familiar. It's also an image that is is repeated again and again and again. And um, at one point, the book brings up this question of of cultural appropriation and and sort of the anxiety of influence. And and this is one of those incredibly beautiful time worn images that has existed for thousands and thousands of years. And I think, oh my gosh, don't quote me on that. Um, but but my sense is that this is a it's, it's a very old piece of art. And there is something so um, so compelling about it, but also something deeply familiar, which a lot of the book has to do with these ideas of returning to something and of nostalgia. Uh, so, so I really love it in that regard. I also love the fact that the um, the the font is like an almost computer like kind of font. To me, it also, for whatever reason, really speaks to the '90s. This really, especially the top part where it says New York Times bestseller. Um, that to me is, for, for whatever reason, that feels like a very 90s kind of font. I also love the rainbow. I love the, um, it, it's, because it's in pastel colors, it's a little bit less of a, of a um, sort of a queer coding kind of thing. But I really do, um, I, I love the way that that is nuanced, that there is a sense of inclusion. And, and in fact, you have, you know, you have a couple of different examples of people who are who are gay in the book, and even Sam himself has had some some sort of bisexual experimentation, um, and and you have like this real range of people, and and part of what marks them as different, as individual, as interesting and deep, is in fact their sexual preferences. So I, I like the idea of this rainbow as being a little bit evocative of that, but not sort of hitting us over the head with that either. In fact, Gabrielle Zevin made a comment in one of the interviews I listened to that she has liked a lot of the covers of the 10 novels that she has written, but this is one where she really saw herself, which is so interesting to me, and I really loved that about this cover. So back to the title itself, I love the repetition of it. So we have tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's So you have the, the and repeated like that is a stylistic choice, obviously. It's a, it's a very important thing. You see it a lot in Faulkner. You see it a lot in, in Hemingway. There is a sense of, of that, um, the, the inclusion of and, even though it's not necessary in that first, um, between the first two tomorrows, it slows the reader down a bit. It, it gives us sort of a different pace, a different cadence. And in this case, I love the way it makes uh, the, the repetition of tomorrow. It does slow it down. It makes it feel very sort of even. You have tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. You also, it's really driving home this idea of repetition because you have these words repeated in that way. It's also, I love the fact that as, an, as a title, it is um, optimistic in some ways. You have this idea of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. There's this idea of sort of forward-looking feel. But in case this didn't pop out at you right away, this is in fact from Macbeth. And the passage from Macbeth is in fact very dark. I'm just going to read the first three lines. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. So just those first three lines give us a sense, in fact, that this is not an overly optimistic chunk of Macbeth. And in fact, this is the part, of course, uh, that ends with a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So it's this very nihilistic passage of Macbeth. So even as, you know, sort of at first blush, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow sounds optimistic, 
But in fact, it is a reference from a supremely dark passage and a very famous passage in, uh, in you know, English literature and all of English literature. In addition to the literary references, this optimism coupled with this pessimism, I also really loved the very sort of, um, it's not quite practical, but, but almost a practical evocation here because when you have these video games and this becomes a very important theme of, of the novel, is that you, in a video game, you can always restart. So, you know, you have this tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Essentially, you can you can start life over again and again and again if you die in a video game. So there is this sense of like a perpetual tomorrow in video gaming that I think she's capturing so, so well here with her, uh, with her title. And then another thing I think she's alluding to and capturing beautifully that was actually slightly annoying to me is that there, there are sort of these cycles and these dynamics that repeat over and over and over in the, in the novel. One of them being Sam and Sadie's tension. A lot of that worked very well for me, but I did, there were times when I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a little tired of you know Sadie blaming Sam for whatever the thing is and then deciding she's not going to talk to him and then Sam feeling bad and Sam being angry and the two of them sort of um you know and this is very much the nature of creative relationships and I appreciated Sadie's ambition and 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 all of her drive and I appreciated Sam's sensitivity and his conviction and I also really appreciated the well that Gab- the way that Gabrielle Zevin shows us both sides and how complex these things are and how often you know motivations are misunderstood and and situations are misread but I was a little bit driven crazy by the the sort of coming together and then breaking apart and coming together and breaking apart of our two main characters I will say that that again it's it's beautifully evoked here with this title with this tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Okay. So now that we've discussed the title and the cover art, we're going to go ahead and open the book. So we have um a dedication at the beginning here for Hans Canosa, I believe I said his name was, in work and in play. I love that. I also love that um she you know it seems to me that she has this well this is thanks to my literary sleuthing, actually. You know, I'm a bit of a literary groupie, a little bit of a sleuth. I did quite a bit of looking at Hans Canosta. And again, he is a movie producer and I believe has worked with Gabrielle Zevin on several different projects. So, so you can imagine that they have the kind of creative relationship hopefully it's not exactly the same, as Sam and Sadie, you know, they met when they were relatively young at Harvard, um, not when they were 12 um, and 11, but or 12 and 13, but they were very young and seemed to have this very fruitful, uh, by all, by, well, by Gabrielle's account, uh, a very positive relationship and a very positive marriage. So I'm assuming they're married, maybe not, maybe they're just partners. But this idea of in work and in play is such a beautiful, a beautiful kind of, again, an evocation of what the novel really is about. And in fact, at the end, in the acknowledgments, she says exactly that, that this is a book about work. It's obviously a book about play, and it's also a book about love. So I, I like this idea of work and play at the beginning as being echoed in the acknowledgments. Okay. Then we're going to move on. Um, She has a very brainy um, intertextual uh, epigraph here. Intertext, again, simply being anytime um, another piece of literature is mentioned. So here we have a poem by Emily Dickinson, and it reads, That love is all there is, is all we know of love. It is enough. The freight should be proportioned to the groove. 
I love this so much. In fact, I'm really loving this poem even more now that I read it out loud. It's so interesting. That love is all there is, is all we know of love. It's almost like a palindrome. It's this beautiful kind of um, snake-like kind of thing that's happening here in the beginning. We're beginning with love, we're ending with love. Um, and this idea of that, that love is, is really all-consuming, which is a theme that runs through the entire, uh, entire novel, certainly. And then um, after this couplet, after the initial couplet, we're moving on to the second and final couplet. It is enough. The freight should be proportioned to the groove. So this is this idea, and I love Emily Dickinson. I like how abstruse a lot of her work is and how sort of it's sort of hermetic and difficult it can be. And, and in this case, the freight and the groove, you get a sense of what that is, but I love how freight and groove and this idea of those being proportioned um, seems so different from this idea of love. And yet the pairing of these couplets makes us read them um, in connection with each other. And the idea of, of love as being something that is freight, you know, something that needs to be carried and it needs to be transported and it needs to be tended, all of that as being proportioned to the groove it's just, it's a really, really beautiful sentiment. And then later in the book, of course, maybe you haven't gotten there yet, but at the end, there is a section called Freights and Grooves. So again, all of these ideas of, of freight and, and things being carried and, and, and enduring, a lot of that, you know, should in your mind echo back to this idea of love. Now, this contents, we have a table of contents, which obviously is not always included. I love a good table of contents. I like to, um, I'll usually just kind of skim through to get a sense of what we're going to read. And then of course, I immediately forget and I'm surprised by every one of these titles. Um, those of you who listened recently to my lecture on the vanishing half will know that uh, I was not a huge fan of the way that Britt Bennett had titled some of her sections. I like these much, much more. Um, I, I think they're very well done. I like what they bring up. I like what they focus on. It's also interesting to go back and look at them now and, and sort of remind yourself of, of what, these different, um, what these different sections were all about. Also, these 10 sections, it's interesting because these are not chapter headings. They're section headings, and then each has a bunch of chapters within it. It really speaks to how carefully organized and how carefully plotted this book is. The structure is excellent, um, but, but it does speak, you know, it's 400 pages long. It does speak to a certain, uh, a certain well, it speaks to immense care that Gabrielle Zevin has put in, into structuring this book, these sort of chunks that have to do with time or they have to do with a certain theme. Some of them are structured differently. There's one very cool section where she has 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, 3A, 3B, because you're following Sam and Sadie in tandem. So some of these sections are a bit um, experimental, not overly so, but in a way that's very satisfying. Okay, section one is called Sick Kids. I like the double entendre there, um, you know, the idea of actually sick kids, like ailing kids, but also that idea of something um, that's sick as like being very positive, like, hey, that's sick. Oh my God, that sounded terrible. That is me and my 53-year-old self trying to sound young. Okay, we're going to dive in to the very first opening paragraph here. Before Mazer invented himself as Mazer, he was Samson Mazer. And before that, he was Samson Mazer. A change of two letters that transformed him from a nice, ostensibly Jewish boy to a professional builder of worlds. 
And for most of his youth, he was Sam, S-A-M on the Hall of Fame of his grandfather's Donkey Kong machine, but mainly Sam. So I love this. I love the fact that, again, we're having this echoing of this like tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow because of this idea of invention and reinvention. I also like that um, when you read it out loud, Mazer sounds exactly the same. You have, of course, M-A-Z-E-R, and, and he invented himself, which is this beautiful kind of, um, it's like, you know, Zeus or Athena popping from the head of her father, these sort of, these sort of, um, origin stories that are so dramatic. And this idea of inventing oneself is really, is really, really beautiful, especially because Sam is a character whose patrilineal line, you know, his father, George Mazur is largely absent. Um, it really throughout the entire novel, they have, you know, one kind of pizza date, I think that they go on or some sort of fancy lunch date. And it's a fancy lunch date, not the pizza date. It, but, but you have this sense of, of, of him really as having, because he is an orphan, um, and because he's from these two different worlds, his father's Jewish, his mother is Korean, which, by the way, by the way is exactly Gabrielle Zevin's, that's her ethnic heritage. Her father is Jewish from Europe, and her mother is Korean. So you have um, Sam, who has, he, he sort of, in some ways, it's, it's difficult to do, but in some ways, he also is a bit of a tabula rasa here, um, in that he is between worlds. He's not Jewish. He's not rich. He's not Korean. He's not poor. He doesn't have really any parents, although his grandparents are a very strong influence. And we're going to talk about the incredible depiction of grandmothers uh, in the second section of this lecture. But we have this Mazur. Mazur, um, you know, is, is reinventing himself. Of course, the first name Samson is significant because you should be thinking of Samson and Delilah. And of course, there is that amazing scene where Sam, um, together when he's very drunk with the help of his friend Marks, shaves off all of his hair in this very Samsonian kind of thing. But interestingly, he does not, in fact, lose his power. He does come together with Sadie after that in a way that makes you think maybe that's kind of the nod to the Samson and Delilah story. Um, but, but there is a sense of Samson as being someone who, who is inventing himself and, and in lots of ways is a very strong character. In addition to this idea of Mazur as being repeated over and over, there is, of course, this, this really beautiful, and it could feel very heavy-handed, but this beautiful idea that he is, is a maker of mazes. He is, it, when she mentions him as a professional builder of worlds, you know, she has the P and the B and the W are all capitalized. It's sort of his title, which is so awesome because really he is a builder of worlds, not only of these, you know, um, video game worlds, but also of, of building his own world. You know, he's sort of building his own reality and really living by his own standards and by his own rules. But you also have him as a drawer of mazes. And that happens in the very, very beginning. He draws a maze from his house to Sadie's house. He um, gives her several different mazes. She keeps the mazes. That's one of the ways that he knows that they've kind of found each other again, is that that maze that he gave her when she was young still exists. So you have this idea of him as being someone who makes mazes, whose name is actually Mazer. And again, something that could be heavy handed, but because Gabrielle Zevin is, because the text is so rich and because she's so intelligent, it does not come across as, he as heavy handed. Okay, we're gonna read the first sentence of the next paragraph. This again is still, uh, we're still literally on page three of the novel. On a late December afternoon in the waning 20th century, 
Sam exited a subway car and found the artery to the escalator clogged by an inert mass of people who were gaping at a station advertisement. Interestingly, this is the first scene that popped into Gabrielle Zevin's mind. I found that out during one of her interviews. The first thing she saw was Sam coming out of this of this subway car. And as a student, a former student of Harvard, she knows this area well. And um, you have this idea of him coming out and there's already this very intelligence. Uh, you know, you have this idea of of an artery as being clogged by this inert mass of people, the word inert there, um, and, and just this whole sort of cardiac uh, metaphor is really signaling us that this is a, a very bright writer and that we're in for a, a fairly intellectual read. But I also love the, this, this really sort of dark in more ways than one, on a late December afternoon in the waning 20th century. So you have all of these endings inherent here. It's December, it's the end of the year. It's late afternoon, which in the Northeast, in Boston, New England, it's going to be getting very dark very soon. It's you know presumably very cold. And we're also in the waning 20th century. So it's not just the end of any year, it's literally the end of not even just a decade, but in fact, a century and not just a century, a millennia. Is that true? I think that's true. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, so you have all of these different endings. And in fact, Gabrielle Zevin really wants the reader to feel like the misanthrope quality of Sam. He is very misanthropic. So he's a character, um, she envisioned him coming out of the subway and she envisioned him wearing this giant coat as being a very small person in this giant coat. And again, in the interview, she said that she wanted him to be like a 20 year old who also feels like he's like 45, meaning feels in the sense that you could sense that from him. So I think that this, this idea of placing him in the, in the midst of all of these waning moments and all of this impending darkness is so good in that regard. And of course, the very cool thing about it, and, and we're going to see this again and again, this linking together of this real pessimism together with optimism, this is an ending at the very beginning of the book. And not only is it at the beginning of the book, but in fact, he is about to meet Sadie, which is going to um, you know, sort of reopen uh, this enormous part of his life, uh, his friendship with her and their creative endeavors together. Usually it would be enough to just have that, um, that analysis of that very first paragraph of the of the novel but I actually want to read on page 13 I want to read it's almost sort of a second beginning so we have our introduction to Sam in the beginning and we see the two of them meet and then we move very deftly back to the time um, when Sam and Sadie meet and it's this very beautiful you know the whole first chapter has largely been from Sam's point of view and then we move here to Sadie's point of view and we get this excellent introduction, not just of her, but of her and Sam. We also are being treated to this idea of, of a very fluid sense of time. So uh, throughout the novel, Gabrielle Zevin takes us back and forth in time in many different ways, but always in this very grounded, very sort of concrete way so that the reader is never lost. So we had our introduction of Sam and then here on page 13, 10 pages later, we have this paragraph. On the day Sadie first met Sam, she had been banished from her older sister Alice's hospital room. Alice was moody in the way of 13-year-olds, but she was also moody in the way of people who might be dying of cancer. Their mother, Sharon, said that Alice should be given a great deal of latitude, 
that the dual storm fronts of puberty and illness were a lot for one body to grapple with. A great deal of latitude meant Sadie should go into the waiting room area until Alice was no longer angry with her. This is such an artful beginning. So there's so many great things that are happening here. I love the, the clarity in the beginning of this. On the day Sadie first met Sam, it's just a very straightforward, it's not once upon a time, but it's a very straightforward introduction. And there are lots of excellent sibilants in the beginning. Obviously, if Sadie and Sam are your first characters, you're really leaning into the sibilant sound, which is that S sound. But we have Sadie and Sam who had banished from her older sister Alice's so you have banished is, is a, um, it's, it, it's, it's another sibilant feeling. The SH is kind of this nice sibilant feeling. Um, and then you have sister and Alice and hospital. So you have all of these S sounds and then it ends with room. So there's this very sort of a, this nice, a lot of S's moving right along. And then it ends with this kind of um, this nice low vowel. And then right on the heels of room, we have moody. Again, it's an echoing. It's this very nice kind of, um, it's very smooth. It feels very sort of easy to read. Alice was moody. And moody is, um, is it's such a good choice of wording here because that's the way that, that, that um, Sadie would be thinking of it. Like as a parent, you might say, you know, Alice is suffering or Alice is depressed or Alice is anxious. Um, but moody is, is, is very much the way that, um, you know, a sister would be a, a tad bit more dismissive. Moody in the way of a 13 year old, but also moody. And again, I like the repetition here of room, moody, moody. You have this, um, while you're talking about someone being moody, you have these low vowels that are kind of expressing that tone in the way of people who might be dying of cancer. So right at the beginning of the novel, we have this notion of death. We have this kind of specter of death that actually hangs over much of the novel. You, there's a lot of loss. There's so much pathos in this book. And it is very important that it, it's, and this is, it, it, in lots of ways, this is sort of the beginning of the novel because this is temporally, in terms of time, this is the beginning of the novel. This is when we're first meeting Sadie and Sam together. It's really kind of the inception of their story. Um, and in it is death. They are brought together by death. Gabrielle Zevin said that she she really wanted to have people who were from very different class backgrounds. And in this case, she gets exactly that because she thinks of a hospital as the great equalizer. There's a very sort of universal feel that everyone who's in the hospital is humbled and is, is sort of equaled by illness. So it continues in this amazing way. Um, we have their mother, Sharon. I love that her name is Sharon because there is this idea of uh, that, that is continued throughout the entire book. This idea that um, Sadie, as a child, you know, was was made to that she was neglected. So this idea of Sharon, this idea of having to share your mother so completely, is sort of underscored here by this kind of throwaway name of their mother, Sharon. She's, it, it's not, in fact, an equal amount of sharing at this point in their lives. And it's very formative for Sadie to be neglected during that entire year. And I love that a great deal of latitude is clearly the voice of Sharon. It's clearly the voice of the mother. And then Gabrielle Zevin has it in italics, a great deal of latitude. So she's the kind of kid who even at 11 or 12 is sort of parroting her parents in a way that's a little bit snarky, a little bit of an attitude, but also is this very sort of precocious kind of, um, uh, you know, tween here. And, and she understands right away. And she's, she's, you know, understanding of what's happening and she's happy to comply. But there is this um, amazing kind of introduction of this young woman who, um, you know, just really has a lot of chutzpah and is, is um, you know, she's, she's, 
about to embark on this very important relationship. Of course, there are a couple of bumps in the road right away. But Gabrielle Zevin does this amazing job of, of giving us her voice and really giving a, a very excellent snapshot of her family and some of the verbiage and, and the kind of intelligence um, that, that, that Sadie would have grown up with. So now we have looked at our, um, our definitions of, or our introductions of the two kids of Sam and Sadie, and um, tune in to parts two and three of the lecture to learn uh, more about all the ways that I think tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is just an incredible literary feat. Listeners, readers, welcome back to part two of our discussion of Gabrielle Zevin's unbelievably great Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. In part two today, we are going to uh, discuss a couple of different aspects of the novel that are are very sort of, um, they're sort of small things that I really, really loved about this work, small and yet I think very effective. So this was a very difficult lecture to pull together because honestly, there is so much to talk about, and not just because this is a longer uh, piece of writing, but because it's very nuanced in a bunch of different, really sophisticated and engaging ways. Um, I'm going to very briefly run through all of these things that we're not going to talk about, just because it seems really important to point out all of the ways that um, that Zevin is really firing on all cylinders here. And again, these are, these are things that you can read about or you can hear in other book blogs, but... There's an unbelievably sort of deep and rich sense of character development, uh, of sweep. This is really this very sort of epic book. It, it, it spans many years, many geographies. Uh, also, the plot is very, very well done. And um, a couple of different interviews and different sort of book podcasts that I've listened to have talked a lot about all of the different themes that come up in the book. Themes are something that I don't particularly kind of um, drill down on because I think you know they're broad and they're interesting, uh, and 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 they make for some for some good conversation. But what's more interesting to me, in lots of ways, is the actual prose. But some of the many many themes that Gabrielle Zevin develops so well are themes of loyalty, thing, themes of friendship, all of the nuances of friendships over time, um, work dynamics. You know how how people cooperate when they are working together. Power in romantic relationships is something that she treats, I think, very well. And sexuality in general. So there's a, you know, you have a a, a whole array of different sexual orientations here. You know, you have some bisexuality, you have some people who are slightly, um, you know, less sexually interested than others. Uh, You have some sort of light bondage and and, um, that's treated, I think, very well and in a very nuanced way. We have a lot about marriage. We have a lot about the loss of a parent uh, in a couple of different ways. We have intergenerational relationships, I think, handled really well. The immigrant experience is handled really well. Uh, And there's a lot in the book about mixed race. So um, Gabrielle Zevin said in an interview that the storied life of A.J. Fickrey, 
she realized at some point that she was writing a book about a, a, sort of a trio, I think, or maybe a duo of mixed race characters. And you have a continuation of that here. Um, and, and a lot of it is about sort of being biracial or mixed race means that you, um, you can belong in many different situations, many different contexts, but that you're changing a lot given the different contexts and that you can sort of both belong in both places and also feel like you belong in neither place. She talks about women in academia and women in the work world. Both of those themes are, are handled really well. Maternity and the allure of video games. So this is this sort of long laundry list of all of these themes that she develops very, very well. But again, what's most interesting to me are some things that are unique to the book because I think she does them so well. And one of the things we're going to begin with here is this idea of, of, of really sort of laying out this kind of philosophical treatise about the allure of video games, why they are so popular. And this was very interesting for me to read as someone who does not understand the allure of video games. I literally don't think I ever even played an arcade game back when you could play like Galaga or Space Invaders or whatever it was. I don't even think I used the old Atari like I think Pong, I think I tried Pong once and then I was like, mm, that's not really for me. And, you know, I'm, I have a lot of gamers in my life, as those of you who are watching the YouTube channel can see, you, you know, uh, nearly everyone I know who is of my children's generation, there's some game that they like to play. And so this was a really interesting aspect of the novel because it really helped me understand, in fact, what it was that is drawing people to these games going to turn to page 65. I also love the concision and, and again, the sort of philosophical way that, um, that Zevin is describing why these games are so satisfying. What, after all, is a video game's subtextual preoccupation, if not the erasure of mortality? So I love this idea, um, you know, right from the top, she's talking about sort of the most uh, salient thing about video games. And it's something that is reflected in the title, that, which we spoke about in the first section. But it's something that, that comes up again and again throughout the book, which is this idea that um, when you are playing a video game, you can, for all intents and purposes, be immortal. And then we're going to look at page 80. Up at the top, that very first paragraph on page 80, this is Sam speaking. What was amazing to Sam and what became a theme of the games he would go on to make with Sadie was how quickly the world could shift, how your sense of self could change depending on your location. As Sadie would put it in an interview with Wired, the game characters, like the self, is contextual. So I love this. So this is right after he's talking about having moved to Koreatown when he's nine and this, this sense of, of understanding that a large, you know, you can be surrounded by all Asian people and how in some ways that made him feel more Asian and also made him feel less Asian because he is half Asian, half Korean and half Jewish, um, just like Gabrielle Zevin herself. But this idea of the self being contextual is, is something that a video game can highlight. And it's something that's very attractive for Sam that you can sort of control the context and thereby control your sense of self. But I also just love this sort of pointing out the fact how much the self is in fact uh, contextualized. It's really very dependent on you know who we are with and the setting we are in very much like code switching or um, you know the different selves that we show the world. It's really interesting to sort of um, to think about how video games shine a light on that, but also just that that phenomenon in general. Okay, we're going to look at page 171 and 72. 
in games, the thing that matters most is the order of things. The game has an algorithm, but the player also must create a play algorithm in order to win. There is an order to any victory. There is an optimal way to play any game. Sam, in the silent months after Anna's death, would obsessively replay the scene in his head. If, he do if she doesn't take the job on press that the button, and if Anna can't afford to buy the new car, if Anna buys the new car but drives directly home after dinner, if the first Anna Lee doesn't jump from the building, and if Anna never comes to Los Angeles. So again, what we have here is this really beautiful evocation of, of Anna Lee's death, of his mother's death, and also the death of the other Anna Lee. So th this whole kind of meditation is steeped in this, this idea of mortality. This idea of being able to sort of perfect a world or this idea of having control and having order is, is very, um, it, it's a very alluring idea just philosophically. So for, for someone who's not a gamer, it was actually really interesting to think about this idea of like, you, you know, there is a perfect way to play the game. And when you play the game well, then you succeed and you move on to the next level. So there's this sense of orderliness and sense of merit and this sense of if you do it right, good things will happen um, th that we simply don't have in the real world, which made me understand a bit more why somebody would be interested in playing these games. Okay, then we're on page 225. They're talking about one of these games um, that, that's kind of like all like a simulation game where lots and lots of people are playing. I think they call it a mass, massively multiplayer role playing game, um, which was, oh, yeah, it's an MMORGP, RPG. <laughs> I sound like I'm talking about our beloved Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which it, she calls it a clunky acronym, and it is, in fact, that. Um, but this massively multiplayer online role playing game. Oh, sorry, she says a bulky acronym, which is even better than clunky. Uh, it is very bulky. They, he's talking about the allure of these games where essentially you are in a separate world. The game was gentle, peaceful. It was the opposite of a game like Dead Sea. It was a protected world in which nothing bad would ever happen to you. So this is a different concept for me too, you know, as opposed to like Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto, um, you know, this idea in one interview, I heard Gabrielle Zevin, the, the interviewer was calling these comfy games, which was interesting to me. But this idea, again, of order, but, but one step further is that nothing bad can happen to you. These are very sort of peaceful games, um, lots of them having to do with farming and community building, which is really, it, it, it's a whole different world, honestly, that I didn't even really know existed. And I, and I can see the allure of that. Not sure I want to spend any um, hours or even really, frankly, any minutes playing those games, but it's really great to understand them a bit more. On 233, this is when uh, when I th her friend Midori says, whatever you do when they're in Japan, whatever you do, do not have sex with Marks. Do not get together with Marks. And then down at the bottom of the page, it says, oh, but Sadie Green was a gamer. In a game, if a sign warns you not to open a certain door, you will definitely open that door. So it's a um, it's that idea too of of challenge of of and, and it's it's low stakes challenge again. You know, if the game doesn't go well, you can always just restart and play it again, which is sort of part of the game tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Uh, but this notion of of um, of taking challenges and and of, of of risking things when in fact the stakes are not not particularly high, at least. For non-competitive me, they would be very not high. <laughs> um, in the middle of 331, this is um, after 
uh, after the terrible things have happened in the novel, which I'm not going to spoil them even yet because I don't need to. And poor Ant, who's just Ant and Simon are really some of my favorite characters. But, but Ant is describing his work and why escaping into this world is so satisfying. This is Ant talking. Sometimes when I'm working on CPH, that world feels more real to me than like the world world anyway. I love that world more, I think, because it's perfectible, because I have perfected it. This is taking things one step further. This is not just someone who's playing these games, but it's someone who is creating them, creating these worlds. And in the very beginning, we have this uh, a description of Sam as a professional builder of worlds. You know, again, that's capitalized. It would be that sense of, of being able to perfect this thing that is huge and unwieldy and something that's going to engage a lot of people. And in fact, we're going to discuss this in the next chunk of this lecture. There is this very sort of meta thing happening in this book where all of the creation of these video games mimics on some level or sort of reflects or runs parallel to the idea of Gabrielle Zevin creating the world of the novel. So it's an important point, which is that the, the, the creation of this novel is not, in fact, very different from the creation of the worlds that these people, I mean, in some ways, it's very different because you can only do it the one way. Um, you know, you can theoretically start over, but you already know what's going to happen unless you have my memory, in which case you will not remember even like next week. Um, and then everything is new and exciting um, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. But there is this sense of, of, of what Gabrielle Zevin is doing is very close to what Sadie and Sam and Aunt and Simon are doing in terms of creating a world that feels real and that has special effects and that is moving and engaging, which is really a very cool aspect of the novel. There's so many excellent I just said special effects, and it does feel a bit like that. Um, there are these very cool echoes that come in the book where she has things that are verbatim. So it's a little bit like the concept we just were talking about that you can sort of start over or that um, you can move through an algorithm of a, of a certain video game and you would come across similar elements over and over as you're sort of working toward the next level. So we have these echoes that are verbatim, and they're, and they're a little bit, um, I found them a tiny bit spooky, because I have to say, I did read this book very quickly, even for me. Um, and, and it was like, I had these things very firmly in mind because I was reading fairly quickly. And I liked these echoes, but I was like a little bit spooked by them, which is a very good sign. On page 25, so very early in the novel, we have um, the chapter opens with this line, the advanced game seminar met once a week, Thursday afternoons from two to four. And then if we look at, so this is at the very beginning of the book on page 25. And then here we are on page 374. We're 25 pages essentially from the close of the novel. And we have this sentence. The advanced game seminar met once a week, Thursdays from one to four. So, you know, it, it's um, one hour longer when Sadie is teaching it, but it's this beautiful echo of this sentence that's verbatim. She's not bothering to change it, which is kind of a bold thing to do. Usually one of my writing teachers, uh, that was the advice is you can repeat things, but they have to be slightly different every time. And yes, this is one to four, not two to four, but I'm not sure anybody would remember that unless you're comparing them the way that we are right now. But this is this really beautiful symmetrical sort of bookend thing that's happening. Not only is it nearly verbatim, 
But um, it, the fact that it's so similar really points to the, the differences here. So in the beginning, it's young Sadie, who is, I think, 19 at this point, And she is meeting Dove, who is that, uh, you know, this incredible programmer, this Israeli, like, smart guy who um, is, is, I think, a really interesting character. I think a lot of people really hated him. I did not hate him. I think I had some reservations, certainly, about him, mostly because of his arrogance. But in lots of ways, he actually is very generous with Sadie. And Sadie, I think, understands the parameters of the relationship um, on some level understands that he's never going to divorce his wife. I mean, there are lots of reasons why this relationship is highly problematic. But what's beautiful is we have, Dove is one of these characters who who is, he spans the entire novel. Interestingly, um, Gabrielle Zevin in interviews pronounces it Dove, but in the audio version, they pronounce it, the, the narrator pronounced it as Dove. So I'm not sure um, how we're gonna pronounce that. I'm gonna go with Gabrielle Zevin's pronunciation of it, which is Dove. So we have in the beginning, this power dynamic there is, 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 is very tilted. We have this, you know, superstar professor, kind of bad boy, renegade um, teacher person, highly sexualized, blah, 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 with his young student. And then we have this beautiful symmetry where at the end it is Sadie who has, you know, risen in the ranks of academia and is teaching this course at MIT where women are certainly in the in the minority. You know, the the, the student is becoming the teacher literally here. So and and and, it, and this happens because Dove recognizes from the start he recognizes and and promotes her genius and is is very generous with different parts of his teaching and his engine, you know, for the game and whatnot. And then at the end you have this nice thing where he says, "Hey, if you want to teach this class, that would be great." So <clears throat> and it also allows her to, to, to do some healing because of all the tragedies that have happened to her. It allows her to relocate back to Boston, which is someplace she wanted to be. So I love that verbatim echo there. Her echo we see is the name Anna Lee. And I, I see where you could think this was a bit heavy handed. Uh, during one interview, they called it magic realism, which it's definitely my definition of magic realism, I think is a bit more strict having, having studied quite a bit of that um, when I was earning my doctoral degree. But, <clears throat> but the Anna Lee, for me, it worked. It really did work. At one point um, when the second Anna Lee falls or, you know, kills herself and falls on the sidewalk in front of um, Sam and his mother, Anna Lee, they make a point of saying that Anna Lee is a very popular name and there are lots of Anna Lees in the Korean world. And so you have this sense of like, it's a little bit like a Jane Doe or a Jane Smith. There's there, It's possible, you know, that you would have more than one of them. The fact that, um, that it is an Anna Lee who has committed suicide, I loved that scene. It really worked for me. Again, it could have been heavy handed, but because of the way Zevin did it so artfully, it did not feel like that to me. Um, and then we find out later that um, that Marx's mother is also Anna Lee, and she has a slightly different name in Korean, but the American version of it is Anna. <clears throat> so you and 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 it's again that could feel really heavy-handed, except that Marx sees it as a sign and decides that he's going to essentially step in as Sam's mother sort of figure, which is very sweet. Um, Marx, you know, I think on some level, Marx has to be everyone's favorite character because, um, I mean. There were a lot of things I liked about him, but I really loved the idea when Sadie recognizes that he seems like a lucky person, but that's simply because he sees everything as so positive. You know, he he's he's seeing everything through this lens of of goodwill and good luck. And 
you know, when it's a fuyu persimmon tree in their house, turns out that's his absolute favorite fruit. Um, it, it, so there's this, this overwhelming sense of, of sort of goodwill. Um, and, and the fact that his mother is Anna Lee and Sam's mother is also Anna Lee. Again, you could feel that that's heavy handed. But those sorts of echoes, maybe I'm really impressed by them in part because she is able to pull them off so deftly. Um, one other uh, note that actually has to do with the Anna Lee's is this idea of tuberose perfume. So I love the smell of tuberose. Um, it, it's funny it, it, if you look up what it means in like the, you know, lang the, the, the language of flowers, it means both purity, innocence, um, and, and peace. And it also means lust and attraction. So I don't know how you get to both of those places. And I don't know if Gabrielle's even knowing her um, and the level of complexity and thoroughness and richness of this text. She probably did look that up. Um, I like the idea of it being two such different things because a lot of this book has to do with two very different things coming together in one. Um, but so this this perfume is worn by um, by Anna Lee herself, which we find out. And then it's also worn by Frida, who is Sadie's grandmother. So you have these, these uh, very strong women who are wearing this very heady perfume that either has to do with purity and innocence and peace or lust and attractiveness or all of the above. But it's a very bold scent. Um, it's very sensual. It's very earthy. And, and in lots of ways, like very kind of overpowering, which I love because these women are all very sort of bold, overpowering people. That's the perfect segue, in fact, into the last little chunk that I want to talk about during this third section, uh, sorry, second section of the lecture, which is these minor characters that Gabrielle Zevin draws are so strong. So for me, this is a real hallmark of a book is, you know, your main characters, of course, have to be very, very strong and very well drawn and they have to be cohesive and there can't be things that are sort of jarring to the reader. But if you can pull that off also with a minor character and have those minor characters be really additive and really well done and believable and memorable, then you're just really like, this is a very quality piece of literature. So I want to look at both of the grandmothers. So first we're going to turn to page 23. So here on 23, um, and again, this is very early in the novel and we have this, this excellent uh, passage where Frida is the one who's sort of um, the voice of morality here when Sadie is trying to pull a fast one and get community hours for being friends with Sam. This is Sadie's sense of her grandmother, which I just, I, I love the, the sort of concision here, but also the depth. And, and, and really, again, the details that, that Gabrielle Zevin chooses are so powerful. So Sadie's talking about Frida. She was the most stylish woman in the world, which I just, I love that for a grandmother. And I felt that way actually about both of my grandmothers, one in particular. But the idea of having a grandmother who is so stylish really flies in the face of a lot of, you know, grandma cliches. She was the most stylish woman in the world. In addition to being Sadie's grandmother, Frida was also a Los Angeles real estate tycoon with a reputation for being terrifying and unfailingly scrupulous in business negotiation. One of the things that, that Gabrielle Zevin talks about in different interviews, and it comes up quite a bit, is this idea of ambition. And Gabrielle Zevin herself identifies as someone who is very, very ambitious, and she sees ambition in Sadie and this need to be praised and this need to be acknowledged and validated. And so this idea of her grandmother as being terrifying and unfailingly scrupulous um, and a real estate tycoon is really putting, it's, it's so awesome for me because, I mean, 
as a woman who's 53, you're, you're, you're having this, again, flying in the face of sort of, you know, retiring grandma who's just sort of sweet in her like, you know, little round glasses and her gray hair. This woman is ambitious and she's a tycoon and she's got all sorts of um, energy and accolades. And in fact, a lot of presence, she's terrifying. And then she she has this excellent part down here at the bottom where she's pointing out, in fact, that, that this whole scheme of community service for friendship is probably going to go awry. She says to Sadie, but I can tell you that the people who give you charity are never your friends. It is not possible to receive charity from a friend. I'm not sure I totally agree with that. I think that there's plenty of room for, for charity. I mean, depending on how you, how you uh, define that word in friendship. But I do really appreciate the fact that it is Frida who is stepping in here and not as kind of like an old ancient crone or something. This is like a very powerful, very stylish woman with a lot of presence, but who also is making a very important point. And in fact, um, does act as kind of a wise older woman, um, sort of crone figure Oracle, because very soon after the entire uh, community service thing goes awry. Okay, and then we're going to look at 86 to see Sam's grandmother, which I love that they both have a grandmother. I love the kind of matriarchal feel of the book and that so much weight is placed not on the mothers, um, but on the grandmothers. Okay, on page 86. So this is Sam driving home uh, in the car with his grandmother. Bong Cha wore a head, head kerchief and professional driving gloves that had been a gift from her husband and her car's interior was, as always, immaculate. The driver's seat had a wooden bead overlay that supposedly gave a massage or did something for circulation. Maneki Neko, the Zoftig hospitality cat, waved from the back window. So I love this. I love that both of the grandmothers, there's a nice parallel, again, an echo, one of these echoes I was just talking about, that both of the grandmothers are driving. Um, it, it, it's a real sign of, um, and not only are they driving, but like this woman's got her professional driving gloves and she's a fast driver. And there's this sense of, um, of, of these women as being in control, of piloting things, of being drivers. You know, there's, there's a lot of um, energy behind the fact that both of them are driving their grandchildren around. I also love the idea of this hospitality cat. Um, you can picture it. And in fact, I'll show you an image. If you take a look at the YouTube channel, you can see the, the slideshow at the end. And one of the images that I've pulled is of this, um, this hospitality cat. You can picture it as someone with a little paw waving. But I love that she's also describing this, this Japanese tradition as zaftig, which um, is a Yiddish word that means kind of um, Rubenesque, you know, sort of round and curvy. So I love this combination of, of this Asian, in this case, it's Japanese, even though they're Korean, but it's this, um, this Asian together with this Jewish uh, modifier, this Jewish adjective that, that reminds us of, of Sam's heritage. And then it's, I love this part because, of course, it's all about Sam's father. And the grandmother is not a fan of the father and is sort of trying to convey that without saying it too boldly. So a little bit down, she says to Sam, your mother says not to say, but I do not like him, Bong Cha said. And then a little further down, but Sam said, George said I was half him. And if I'm half him, Bong Cha caught her mistake. You are 100% perfect, good Korean boy I love. So you have this idea um, of her just kind of railroading this idea, like, no, no, you're 100% Korean, which is, you know, slightly problematic in some ways, but I really do love this idea of her as being so powerful. 
at the stoplight, Bung Cha patted Sam on the head and then she kissed him on his forehead and then both his delicious round shtetl Buddha cheeks and Sam accepted her lie without argument. So again, I love these subtle ways with the, with the, the shtetl um, uh, Buddha cheeks, this, this idea of, of, of him as being so beloved by his grandparents. And, and there's a lightness to this and, and kind of a humor to it that, that is really so compelling. But you have this really subtle and beautiful emphasis throughout of, of both of his heritages, which I love. So we have these two secondary characters in the grandmothers who are so compelling and powerful and, and um, you know, awesome. And then we also have this Zoe character on page 148 and 149. So she is also a very ambitious person. She leaves Marx at some point because she wants to go pursue her, her career in music. And she realizes that, you know, she's kind of done. There's a lot of well, I was going to say there's a lot of sort of anti-marriage rhetoric in the book. And I don't mean rhetoric in a bad way. I simply mean, you know, there's a lot of discussion of, of marriage and its drawbacks, which I think is interesting because it's, it's, I like that. You know, these are women who do not need to be married. You know, most of these women, the, the grandmother, one of the grandmothers is married. But a lot of the women in this book choose not to be married and, um, and, and are very happy doing so. So here we have Zoe. Um, we are on page 148 and 149. But again, here we see her as a minor character, but as sort of an oracle, someone who is really solving problems the way that Frida uh, does earlier. So this is when Marx comes into their, their shared home. Her Titian hair fell past her breasts and she wore only underwear. Zoe always kept the heat turned up in her apartment so she could wear as little clothing as possible. She liked feeling the vibrations of her instruments, she said. She liked feeling the vibrations of the earth underneath her and the air around her. So I'm reading that because Zoe is a very lampoonable character. I mean, this is someone who, um, you, you know, she's a bit strange. She's a bit earthy. Like you could really make fun of this character if you are Gabrielle Zevin. She could become a, kind of a type, you know, some sort of California hippie type. And yet that is not at all what is happening here. So um, down a little bit further, this is when um, Marx is trying to, to get everybody to move out to Los Angeles. Zoe says, the solution is completely obvious, Zoe said. You have to convince Sam and Sadie to go to California with us. The winter won't be a problem in California. Everyone drives out there, so Sam won't have to walk as much, and his recovery will be easier. I'm not sure I'm going to California yet, Marx said. Oh, you are, said Zoe. I know it. She's so sure of herself, but in a way that's not yucky and it's not controlling. It's just sort of like, this is a fact. This is a fact. And then, and when she lays out this whole idea about, um, you know, California and driving and Los Angeles and the weather, like those are all very persuasive arguments. It's very practical, but she's also getting exactly what she wants. I mean, she wants to move to California and she's going to bring all of these people with her, which I love. And this is, again, a minor character who's having this major impact on all of their lives and on the novel uh, as well. And then on the, the next part here, this is like really, I think, the coup de grace by our, by our excellent secondary character, Zoe. She says to Marx, Marx, my love, you are so innocent. You don't have to convince anyone. You tell Sadie that Sam needs to go to California. His foot is rotting. He needs to have the surgery and he won't do it in Massachusetts. You tell Sam that Sadie needs to go. She needs to find a way to break up with Dove. Those two are thick as thieves. They'll do anything for each other. 
So I love this. I mean, I love the sentiment behind it too, which is that, um, you know, it's reinforcing this idea that Sam and Sadie are, you know, thick as thieves, that they are, you know, would do anything for each other. Um, one of the ties that, that, that spans the entire novel and is really very important, um, despite a lot of ups and downs. But I also love the fact that it's Zoe, who's this quirky, memorable, um, to me, very appealing, independent, unique woman who is really kind of bending everyone to her will, but is also very savvy about why this is in fact going to be better for all of them and then how to essentially have them convince each other. So there's a certain level of, you know, if the secondary characters are this strong and this well-written and this well-drawn, um, I just have a sense of Gabrielle Zevin as, as really being kind of a wizard back there where character development is concerned. And certainly, um, you know, all of the themes I mentioned at the beginning, it's, it's a book where all of this is so well developed, and and but again, for me, one of the most fun parts is to pull out these um, these smaller aspects. So, to hear more of both the larger aspects and the smaller aspects, tune in to part three of our discussion of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Welcome to the third and final installment of our discussion of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. So today we're going to talk briefly, uh, but I hope thoroughly, about intertexts. We're going to talk about some of the really brainy aspects of this book, um, which of course were really fun for me to read. I can't emphasize enough how um, the, the broad strokes of this novel are unbelievable, just so incredibly well conceived and executed. But for me, some of the really fun parts of it and some of the, um, the ones that I think are most worthwhile in terms of digging into are some of the smaller uh, details that, that really stood out to me. We're gonna discuss figurative language very briefly. We're gonna take a look at the house as symbol. And then we're gonna take a look at the close of the, of the novel. Okay, we're gonna dive right into this idea of intertexts. Intertexts is just a fancy word for any text that is mentioned in a given piece of literature. And there are so, so many in this book. Um, lots and lots of different books are mentioned, lots of songs, lots of, lots of different video games. So one of the things um, that I wanna talk about are just a few of the bigger, uh, bigger intertexts that in fact span the whole entire novel. So, there are a lot of uh, a lot of references to the Iliad and the Odyssey, and that is um, those are obviously very carefully chosen on the part of Gabrielle Zevin, in part because they are quest stories and they're stories about um, enduring friendship and enduring relationships and about betrayal and about being apart and coming back together. So there's a, there's a lot of of sort of larger pieces of both the Iliad and the Odyssey that can be seen as sort of um, structuring tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. But there are a couple of very specific things I wanted to touch on. One is this idea of the tamer of horses. So Marx, who is really just an incredibly well-drawn, really, you just love him. I mean, I don't think there's a single reader out there who is not thinking that Marx is amazing. 
and he is tamer of horses. He's sort of um, not exactly an unsung hero, but he's not the flashiest. He's the one who's supporting everyone else. At one point, Sam says he's boring. Um, but there's a lot of different references to him in that guise that are that are I think very telling because again he's not you know he's not Odysseus and he's not Circe and he's not um, you know Telemachus even he's he's in fact it's a Telemachus being Odysseus's son but in this case he he is kind of this unsung hero. We also have together with the, with the Odyssey we have this idea of Daedalus so. Sam himself takes on the name Daedalus very late in the novel uh, when he is in the video game that he has created essentially for Sadie. And he has uh, several different guises, several different avatars. At one point, they call them Samatars uh, because of his first name in that game. But one of them is this Dr. Daedalus character. And Daedalus is someone in Greek mythology who when they when the the when Circe's sister gives birth to the Minotaur and they realize how, how much destruction this thing is going to wreak, he builds this huge maze uh, under the city, and and that's obviously very much like Sam, who is constantly building mazes. So there's this idea of mazes as being protective. So it, it's this very sort of beautiful, very subtle reference here to Sam as Mazer, someone who's building mazes and also as as this um, you know protector of entire cities on some level. And, and this idea of being able to create whole worlds. Daedalus was an inventor, um, you know, famously the father of Icarus, but really like was someone who was very like his whole lifeblood was this idea of inventing things. I also love the fact there's a very quick reference to um, to Zoe. Uh, who we heard about in, in section two. She's a character I really like very much. She's one of um, Marx's exes, and then they get back together, and then she leaves him again. Uh, you know, the idea being that he's a bit boring, and Zoe has her ambitious, um, you know, life to lead. And so she heads off to Rome to do some sort of, you know, internship or fellowship. And there is just this quick reference to the fact that she wins a Pulitzer eventually for a version of Antigone that she does. So you have this, this really important important um, classical drama here, um, Antigone, that she puts on. And it's, and it's significant in the sense that Antigone, one of the things that's happening in that play by Sophocles is the, the main character, Antigone, is having revenge for the death of her brother. And what I love about that is this idea of Marx eventually being sort of a brotherly character uh, for Zoe. Obviously, they are in love several different times and they are lovers, but they also are very good at being friends. She's not ever actually avenging his death either, um, but but on some level, there is this idea of, of this Antigone character and Zoe as being, um, you know, sort of... Um, associated together in a way that I really love because it provides nuance in our relationship with Marx. I also, there are a bunch of different references, literary references that Gabrielle Zevin makes that are um, impressive to me because they're, they're popular and they're um, important and they're childlike. So there's this kind of playful element to them, but they're also very telling. So I'm thinking in this case of Alice in Wonderland, which comes up several different times. Obviously, Sadie has a sister named Alice. Alice Ma is one of the characters, the main female heroine in one of the video games they create. Um, but there is this sense of, 
of Alice, of these worlds that they are creating together, Sadie and Sam, as being very much like Wonderland and, and, and like the world through the looking glass. So I, I like the reference particularly to um, Alice's um, adventures through the looking glass because this idea of, um, of, of, of like a mirrored, a, a different a, a vision, a world that you can see, but one has been sort of altered and everything is strange and upside down, which really is, you know, a great metaphor for these video game worlds that these two geniuses are building. There's also Wizard of Oz is another one of the intertexts. And I love that one as well, because it's the same concept. You know, she's not in Kansas anymore. In fact, she is in this kind of magical place where all of these crazy adventures happen. There's this quest. You have these characters who are all sort of, um, you know, needing different things. And in lots of ways, Wizard of Oz is, you know, it's very much like both sides, which is that that video game uh, that the two of them create. I also like the idea of Kansas as being, um, you know, sort of parallel and evocative of all of these kind of Western games, these sort of cozy games that, that Sadie is drawn to and that Gabrielle Zevin has said in several different interviews that she really loved as, as a kid. On that note, I wanna take a look at page 400. So this is Gabrielle Zevin in the acknowledgements. And this is such an interesting thing for me. I, you know, when I read the intertexts that are most familiar to me are the literary ones. And so I, I, I those have great resonance. And, you know, if, if they mention offhandedly that, that uh, Zoe won a Pulitzer for Antigone, for, for me, that, that has all sorts of nuance. What was really interesting to realize is that Gabrielle Zevin also has a huge number of, of uh, references to video games. And I really wish on some level that those had the same resonance for me. It's literally like she's speaking a different language most of the time. And on page 400, she says, it is unlikely that Dove would have received a beta copy of Metal, sorry, Metal Gear Solid in January 1996, or that Sadie would have played King's Quest IV the Perils of Rosella in August 1988. Throughout the book, I chose the games that made the most sense for the story, even when the dates were slightly wrong. King's Quest IV, for example, is one of the few prominent games of that era with a female protagonist and, not coincidentally, one of the first games I loved. So, I love this kind of um, this admission that she was using them, you know, not that I would have noticed in the slightest, but she's using them, you know, anachronistically. So if you were a game player, you might be like, wait a second, there's no way this could be happening. But but more importantly, she is acknowledging the fact that these games, you know, this is she's not just listing these, you know, to sort of name check them. They really have great significance. You know, I did not know that King's Quest Four had a prominent female character as sort of the main hero. Heroine, but but you you know if you were an astute reader who also was an astute gamer you would have that reference and it would in fact have more resonance for you it's just so smart one of them um, that I wanted to touch on or actually two very quickly at one point Marx is reading Joan Didion's White Album and it was funny because my marginalia was like really because I had this sense of like I just don't really see Marx you know picking up the White Album uh, by jo by Joan Didion because it's a very dark book and it's very well to me it seems very um, very much like something Zoe would read and in fact she it, she has read it and she's trying to get him to move to California which honestly I'm not sure 
I'm not sure um, Joan Didion's White Album is exactly the thing that you want to read. And they acknowledge that it's not light reading, but it is interesting too because that book has a lot of sort of, of sort of impending doom. And in lots of ways, it's interesting to look back at it because I think Gabrielle Zevin is very much trying to alert the reader that uh, to the fact that when you know Marx gets out there, things are not gonna um, not gonna go particularly well for him. Of course, there's also a huge amount of Shakespeare. Uh, we have, you know, we already discussed a little bit this idea of Banquo and the fact that, um, again, if Marx is playing Banquo, we probably should have known that something um, untoward is going to happen to him. But I love the fact, uh, for example, at one point he says to Zoe when she's doing all of her masterminding, something to the effect that, you know, she really is playing Lady Macbeth because she she's going to get what she wants. And in fact, Zoe is behind the scenes kind of pulling all of the strings and in fact, she gets exactly what she wants, which is for everyone to move to Los Angeles with her. So these intertexts, um, you know, it's just another sign of how incredibly rich this text is. Okay, so I want to move on to a couple of other ways that this book is incredibly brainy. So, um, you know, if you are anywhere close to 53, you probably have this idea of these SAT words. You know, they were words like pugnacious or, you know, beneficent, or there were, there were sort of all of these kind of archaic words that we, we had to learn back then, which we learned later is totally elitist and terrible. But I still do get a bit of a thrill. And it's so interesting because Sadie, not Sadie, um, Gabrielle Zevin is using this kind of diction here. These are like not even SAT words. I mean, we're not talking about like puerile or, you know, penurious. What we're talking about here are these words that are very sophisticated and very sort of now. And it's impressive to me that someone who was born in 1977 is able to, to sort of maneuver so easily with all of these, um, these different folks and these different words that they would be using. You know, it's very sort of MIT, very sort of Harvard thing, but there is a certain um, sort of computer geekiness to some of this vocabulary that I really love. So we're going to look at page six. We're going to dive in just a couple of examples. <clears throat> so this is when Sam um, is, is very first seeing Sadie, and he is trying to get her attention. So we have this. Finally, she turned. She scanned the crowd slowly, and when she spotted Sam, the smile spread over her face like a time-lapse video he had once seen in high school physics class of a rose in bloom. It was beautiful, Sam thought, and perhaps he worried a tad ersatz. So I love so much about this. I mean, of course, he's in physics class. And of course, um, it's this very kind of sentimental, beautiful parallel that he's making, this this like slow time lapse of the rose blooming. Um, and then so you have this kind of beautiful construction and you're, it, it, it's this nice way of imagining, you know, their, their recognition of each other and all of the sort of happiness and beauty in that. And then, um, and perhaps he worried a tad ersatz. So ersatz just means sort of fake or like analog, like not real. And I love the fact that, you know, he he is this like exactly what Gabrielle Zevin wanted to create, which is this 20 year old who actually also sounds like a 45 year old. This idea of, of being worried that this is kind of a fake smile that's happening here. And it's also so Sam to like be having this beautiful moment. And he's such a kind of curmudgeonly character and always has been. So, um, you know, right away, he's like worried that this is a fake thing. It's not a real thing that's happening. And I love the idea of ersatz as being at the end of the sentence. It's also just such a great word with all those weird consonants together. Then we're going to look at page 10 here. 
And this is so, this is, um, it, it sort of echoes ersatz in some ways. So down at the bottom um, of page 10, this is in that same, you know, it's only four pages later, it's relatively um, close, the same scene. There was no ect Sadie in this view, he decided. She looked indistinguishable from any number of smart, well-maintained college girls in the train station. So this idea of an act something is just like a genuine thing or the true thing. So um, there was no act Sadie in this view. So he, he can't see the genuine Sadie. But there is this idea of her kind of proliferating. She's very much like all of these other college girls. And, and I love that because, again, it kind of harkens back even to the art on the cover of the book, you know, this, this repetition of, of all of these letters. But this idea that there are many, many Sadies, and in fact, over the course of the novel, we are going to come in contact with all of these different versions of Sadie, when she's a child, when she's a mother, when she's an adult. So, so you have this idea of multiplicity here and this idea of an ect Sadie. So, and then I just um, sort of quickly, I'm going to touch on a couple of other things. Anna Lee, at one point, Sam's mom, when she's considering leaving New York for Los Angeles, she's concerned that that if she leaves New York and tries to come back, that she will be considered too parochial. And and by parochial, there she's meaning, um, it, you know, it can mean it can have religious connotations, like a like a parochial school would be a you know a Catholic school or something. But there is this idea too of of being sort of provincial. But it's it's a sophisticated use of something. We don't hear a ton from Anna Lee. Um, and when we do, it's very important and revealing. And even just an adjective like that, a concern like that, um, really widens our appreciation of her, of her, you know, intelligence. There are a couple of times where Sam that talks about bloviating um, once later somebody makes a toast and he when he's doing all the PR for the game uh, they mention that he likes bloviating I love that what bloviating is just sort of like talking you know like making a toast or or, or um, you know sort of talking something up but I love the fact that bloviating is it's um, it's kind of gross and it's like a little bit like a blowhard so and and for Sadie you know there is a bit of judgment because Sam you know just kind of eats this stuff up and she's there's always a legitimate concern on her part that she's not getting the credit that she's due. So I love this idea of bloviating um, as being a very sort of elevated strange word, but also one that is connoting this kind of um, blowhard kind of thing. At one point, Sam wants to go out on the balcony and collogue with um, Sadie like a colleague would do, which is just so funny. It's this idea of, of you know, co and log, which is means, you know, voice or, or speaking or word. So, so it's this idea of, you know, a colleague, or those are people who would speak to one another, but using it as a verb is just, it was so like delightful for my brain. I was like, oh my God, right. That would be, you know, there is a verb version of that. I liked at one point when Mark's and Sadie, they have all this, Marks is wanting to get married and wanting to get married and Sadie's always putting it off. And um, they they talk about having a rondelet of inaction, that this, this constant conversation they're having is this rondelet of inaction. And that's one of those beautiful words that not only being a delicious cheese, that rondelet cheese, but this is, you have this idea of, um, of, 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 it sounds very much like what it is. You know, it's this kind of perpetual kind of circling back, this round and round and round it goes. Um, so again, these are, they were sort of extra fun for me, but they also really do speak volumes about the people using them. Quickly on page 235, I want to read a paragraph here that I just love. So Sadie um, is someone asks if she likes or why she got into making video games. Sadie hated answering this question, especially after a person had told her that he didn't, he hadn't heard of Ichigo. 
Well, I learned to program computers in middle school. I got an 800 on my math SAT, won a Westinghouse and a Leipzig. Then I went to MIT, which by the way is highly competitive, even for a lowly female like myself, and studied computer science. At MIT, I learned four or five more programming languages and studied psychology with an emphasis on ludic techniques and persuasive designs, and English, including narrative structures, the classics, and the history of interactive storytelling. Got myself a great mentor, regrettably made him my boyfriend. Suffice it to say, I was young. And then I dropped out of school for a time to make a game because my best friend of me wanted me to. That game became the game you never heard of. But yeah, it sold around two and a half million copies just in the US. So instead, she said, I like to play games a lot, so I thought I'd see if I could make them. Well, good luck to you, the customs agent said. So I love this passage so much. This speaks to, to, to the humor in the novel, which unfortunately we don't have time to talk about. It's so well done because, and humor is hard. Humor is difficult to pull off. And it's so smart and so organic in this book. So she has, you know, this interaction with this customs agent where she wants to explain, you know, her entire self. And it, it is funny to me that, you know, the person who she is feeling the need to, you know, the fact that she has to tell the customs agent really speaks to her need to be recognized and validated by everyone she meets. But I also love just this rundown of all of her accomplishments. I mean, it's really impressive when you kind of line it all up like this. And on some level too, it's reinforcing those intertexts we just were talking about that, you know, she's someone who has studied psychology and also literature. I liked this word ludic that, that's the reason why um, we're looking at this chunk of text in the context of this uh, verbiage, this language that she uses. So ludic just means playful. Um, it's a word that's used actually quite a bit in Spanish. So um, it, it's familiar, but it also is, um, it's a really great, I mean, playful is a fine word, but ludic has kind of a, um, it, it's, it's more sort of the whole structure of why something would be fun and entertaining and playful. Okay, the last thing that we're going to look at in terms of this kind of language that I just got such a charge out of, it's another use of ect. And ect is a strange enough word that I think most readers would have noticed it. But at the beginning of the book, when he's meeting Sadie and they're in that public space of the, um, of the subway station... He, he can't find, you know, this ect version of her because there are so many people who look sort of like her. And that's, you know, on page 10 of the book. And here we are at the very end of the book on page three, 392. So again, essentially sort of 10 pages from the end. Gabrielle Zevin is providing another one of these excellent bookends that she has done for us. They are in an airport together. And you have, again, this idea of this um, ect Sadie. So Sam says... Sadie walked over to the mini bar and poured herself a glass of water. Seeing her back, Sam thought there was no ect Sadie in this view in the way a gamer always knew Lara Croft from her braid. So there's this idea of her being very familiar. And we have this excellent sort of um, bookend, this idea of what is the true Sadie, um, you know, out of all of the different versions of her, uh, whether she's a mother, whether she is a programmer, whether she is Marx's lover. So, so you have this real sense of proliferation and wanting to get to, to, to sort of the genuine article, which is just sort of not possible. It's so smart and so, um, and so well done. And then lastly, 
I want to look at this really incredibly smart use of a, a trope that you find a lot in literature. In fact, you see it in, in Shakespeare, you see it in a lot of Gothic literature. And that is this idea of the house as a symbol. So um, figurative language is any kind of, um, you know, it can be personification, it can be foreshadowing, it can be similes, metaphors, comparisons, things, anytime language is, is saying something that it's not literally meaning, um, that's figurative language. So symbolism is one of those things. So um, oftentimes if you see a house, or a garden, um, the state of the house or the state of the garden will tell you very much about either what's going to happen or the state of, you know, whatever, it, whether it's a family or whether it's a nation. So this is one of the best examples I have ever seen of this. I love it so much. I think you could argue that it's a bit heavy handed, but I found it absolutely charming. On page 265, we have our first introduction of this house. So again, Marx is wanting to um, marry Sadie and Sadie's like, I don't believe in marriage. I don't want to be someone's helpmate. I don't want to, um, you know, I, I'm not sure she's super explicit about not having children, but she understands that often in marriage, as even with her relationship with Sam and their creative endeavors, um, that as a woman, she uh, risks, you know, being sort of second to a husband. So but Marx, who's so sweet and who's so devoted to her and their relationship and their rondelet of inaction, um, really wants to buy a house with her. So on 265, they get a call from their realtor uh, who says, can you come up in your price? They had made a couple of offers. Sadie's kind of blasé. Of course, it's Marx on the phone with the realtor trying to make this thing happen. Uh, and then we have this great description of the house. The house had been built in the 1920s, like most everything in L.A., and it had a dangerous banisterless staircase, French doors everywhere, wide plank floors, and a living room with an A-frame that looked like a church. In fact, the house had been briefly occupied by one of the many cults that passed through Southern California on the road to enlightenment and nirvana. The house was in an appealing but livable state of decay. A 30-foot-tall bougainvillea was in the process of strangling a palm tree out front, the fence that surrounded the property was at a 45 degree angle in places. The roof would need repairs sooner rather than later. The listing had called it a boho dream. Boho meaning overpriced for the work you're about to do. Mark spoke with the realtor and then he covered the mouthpiece and turned to Sadie. So he wants them to come up in price. She agrees that maybe they can, they like the house. But it's so interesting to me because you have... This real sense of, you know, it seems like a charming house, but in lots of ways, this house is very dangerous. So you have this idea, um, the, the first thing we find out, aside from the fact that it's very old, um, is that it has a dangerous bannerless, banisterless staircase. So there is this idea of, of falling, an idea of danger right in the beginning. French doors everywhere, so there are lots of exits. You know, it's not like a cozy house. It's a house that is, is made for exegesis. It's made for, um, you know, for, not exegesis. It's made for egress. <laughs> That's something else. Um, but this idea of being able to, to escape and to be able to see outside is beautiful, but it also means for kind of a very porous house. Um, and this A-frame living room, you know, this high ceiling situation that makes it look like a church, 
um, there is something very beautiful about that, of course, and something kind of reverent and and mystical and and um, uh, spiritual. You know, all of these different cults have come through, but there's also kind of a foreboding in the sense of um, literally of death. You know, this idea of coming to a church in order to you know to think about spirituality and the afterlife. Also, the idea of decay. The whole thing is in a state of decay, and you have a palm tree, which you can read, I think, as a phallic symbol, being strangled by this bougainvillea. It's, it's sort of this idea of passion and beauty. I picture this bougainvillea as that bright, bright pink. It could be purple or that apricot. Um, but, but, but there is this sense of things being out of control and things being strangled. So, so Gabrielle Zevin takes that original um, description. And I was so excited um, when we find out, in fact, that th this house of theirs, um, which signals or sort of symbolizes their union and their marriage and their life together, is really difficult for Sam. So I love this idea of, of Sam as being sort of obsessed with this thing that is highly problematic for him because it is, you know, his best friend and his other best friend. Um, you know, sort of making a life of their own that by definition, if they're living together, he is outside of, of their union. Okay, so on page 323, we have this. Ever since Marks and Sadie had bought this house, Sam had harbored a grudge against it. I love that. It's so kind of on the nose, but it also absolutely works. His initial impression when Mark showed him the online listing was that it had a haunted, dilapidated look. Which, of course, is very, um, you know, we have echoes there of Marx as being Banquo and this idea of the ghost. We have sort of a recollection of that amazing scene where um, Sam, when they're roommates, is um, practicing with Marx and Sam is killing Marx over and over and over. When, in fact, you know, I'm going to spoil this, so turn off the volume if you don't want to hear this. But in fact, Marx dies in Sam's place. So there is this real sense of, of haunting and of banquo of, of this ghost and this idea of, um, of death that, that this haunted, dilapidated look that Sam is identifying is about to become really very concrete. But once he'd heard they were buying it, not long after they had confirmed that they were together, he had become somewhat obsessed with the house. He could not say how many times he had viewed the listing. He had studied the floor plan and the photos as if he expected to be tested on them. He would go to his grave being able to draw the floor plan of 1312 Crescent Place. So again, going to his grave, it, it, you know, there are all of these evocations of death. We could do a whole analysis of 1312 Crescent Place, but honestly, I have not thought about it yet. So we're going to skip that. Plus, we don't have time. He had become certain that they had overpaid based on the comps for the neighborhood. And though they were his closest friends, he looked forward to the inevitable depreciation of their investment. I love this too, because that's just totally that schadenfreude, like that idea of, um, you know, being jealous. He's just jealous. He doesn't want them to have this, this happiness that their union represents. Several months after the sale, the listing and photos were removed from the website and Sam experienced panic, then palpable grief. I loved this because it's sort of like for a while he has kind of a window into their lives. Like he can look at their house and he can sort of be obsessive about their union. And then when it disappears, he no longer has access to it. So then, of course, you have the grief. When Sadie and Marks had him over for dinner the first time, he felt as if he were meeting a celebrity, but one whose fame seemed undeserved somehow. The house in person was charming. It was Marks and Sadie's house. Of course, it was charming. 
So again, there's this idea of him not liking the idea of the union. And yet, of course, these are his best friends and the union and the house are charming. And yet all we've heard about this house so far is all of this kind of hauntedness and the danger and the overgrown nature and the dilapidation. So it's a very complicated vision that we're being asked to, uh, to have in mind. And then all of this house stuff allows for this incredible denouement at the end um, or toward the end of the novel. So one of the things that's so sweet about the book is when Sadie is so depressed, she has her usual depression. And then on top of that, this postpartum depression. And on top of all of that, of course, the tragedy with her husband or her, her you know, with her lover, Marks. So, and the father of her child, of course. But then we have this beautiful thing where Sam uh, creates these worlds for her and in fact has these various avatars um, in in that world. And really there's this beautiful, uh, you know, evocation of the house that allows her to do some really excellent healing. So on page 363, Emily is, is the avatar for Sadie. Emily rode through a grove of fresh fruit trees and then down a long stone path. The fruit trees is, is also really evocative of those important moments. One is when they move, they see the house and Mark's, you know, feels like he's just sort of struck by the, the fact that his very favorite fruit, these fuyu persimmons, are growing in the backyard. And there's that beautiful thing about how Mark seems incredibly lucky, but that's simply because he views the world as, as this kind of overwhelming bounty of goodness. So it seems like he's lucky just because he's looking for goodness everywhere. It also is evocative of that beautiful scene. And in fact, Gabrielle Zevin said this is her favorite scene of the whole book, when they go and... Um, try those peaches in the Central Valley, the ones where you have to write an essay to be able to go um, and, and eat these this fruit that is grown by this old Japanese gentleman. So you have this, this idea of fruit. And of course, anytime there's fruit and fruit trees, you need to think about Eden. So there's this very sort of Edenic, beautiful evocation here of, of an Eden. Um, and it's, it's actually a very sad one because in fact, we have already had the fall of man in the sense of Marx, who is, of course, our Adam figure as having as having died. Okay, Emily rode through a grove of fresh of fruit trees and then down a long stone path past stables and fields. And at the very back of the ranch, she arrived at a white A-frame house, almost like a church. So of course, we are meant to read this house uh, that she has come across as a as an echo of the home that she had with Marx. She dismounted Pixel and she rang the bell. A man in a white cowboy hat answered, who of course is the, you know, the man in, in the white cowboy hat is the hero. You know, he's the, 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 the heroic cowboy. He was in his 60s, noticeably older than almost everyone in friendship, a bit bow-legged, befitting a person who had spent most of his life on horseback, not at all stooped. So I love this. So this idea of him being older and him being sort of in his 60s, it's it's as if um, Sam is offering this version of Marx who is older, of Marx who has grown older because in fact, of course, Marx will never grow older. Under his hat, he had a shock of thick, dark gray hair. He looks, she thought, like his father Ryu. The NPC tipped his hat to her. Howdy, pilgrim. Having horse trouble? So of course the NPC is, here is the non-player character. I think that's right. And, and the non-player character has a whole entire section. And in fact, that is when Marx is dying. So there is this idea of Marx as being both um, sort of tangential to Sadie and Sam, but also being absolutely foundational. 
and I mentioned this before, but when I was in the car listening to this, to that NPC part, and it was unclear whether or not Marx was going to die, it was so difficult for me to, to, to listen to. So here you have him again called the NPC. And of course, when Sadie is saying he looks like his father, Ryu, there, there is this sense of, um, of really understanding that this person here in the A-frame house is in fact a, an older version of Marx. And then on the next page, 364, I miss you, she said. Shucks, ma'am, you're making me blush. I love this. It's not too maudlin. It's not too sentimental. There's this real idea of, um, you know, we know that Sam is behind this avatar of Marx, but, but there is this really sort of beautiful um, sort of lightness to it where it could be really uh, difficult to read. So then she says, what's your favorite part of the Iliad? What's the Iliad? He paused, removed his hat, and a second later, as if possessed, the NPC had transformed into a different version of himself. So, of course, this is the Artamer of Horses. Then, first of all, came Andromache, his wife, and cried, Oh, my husband, thou hast perished in thy youth, and I am left in widowhood, and our child, thy child and mine, is but an infant. Sore is thy parents' grief, O Hector, but sorest mine. Thou didst stretch no hands of farewell to me from thy bed, nor speak any word of comfort for me to muse on while I weep at night and day. When he was finished, he bowed and returned his hat to his head. So here, of course, we have Marx, who is actually being sort of um, driven by Sam on some level. He's being, he's sort of a, um, you know, an avatar of Marx, who is in fact Sam behind the keyboard, reading this incredibly moving part from the Iliad, which is really allowing uh, for Emily slash Sadie to have a goodbye from, you know, Marx, from her husband, who is in fact the father of her child. It's this really beautiful sort of full circle thing about this character in the Iliad, who is, is, is even more so after the death of Marx and the death of Hector, even more so this idea of, of, sorry, the, oh my gosh, the, I'm being interrupted by my cat. The cat is um, nuzzling the microphone. So there's this idea of um, of this really beautiful amount of closure that is coming. Um, and, and one of the reasons why we know that's what's happening is because of this A-frame house. And then I want to take a very quick look at the very last part of the book in closing on page 396 at the very close of the novel. So Sam uh, and Sadie are in the airport. Again, this is that idea of um, there being no ex Sadie. There's no genuine Sadie because there are all these different versions of Sadie. And then they, they say, well, maybe we should make a game together. I love the part. Sadie's like, do you think that's a good idea? And, and he says, probably not. So there's this real sort of understanding and, and sort of tolerance of all of their different sort of friction together. And then on the last page um, of the book, we have this beautiful thing where Sam says, uh, there's some groove in my brain that insists it is a good idea. So of course the groove needs to be, um, you know, commensurate with the freight. We've, again, we have this epigraph in the very beginning, the Emily Dickinson poem, that a beautiful idea about love is all we need to know about love and that the, the groove and the freight need to sort of match. And then here on the very last page of the book, we have this idea of this groove um, that for Sam and Sadie has everything to do with the freight, you know, sort of the weight of their love. And then a little lower down, Sam says, I love you, Sadie. And she says, I know, Sam, I love you too. 
And up until that point, um, Sam has not been able to say this to her. It's not an easy thing for him to say. So it's very important at the close that they are really having this very meaningful rapprochement. And then down at the bottom, so it's this is also very, very much like their initial meeting when he is a little panicked in the the um, the subway station in, at Harvard because he doesn't know how he's going to get in touch with her. He says, what's the best way to contact you, Sam asked. Send me a text or an email or stop by my office if you're ever in Cambridge. I keep office hours Tuesday and Friday from 2 to 4. No problem, Sam said. It's a quick six-hour flight from Los Angeles, less time than it takes to get from Venice to Echo Park. Which again, I love this idea of like this comic error, this kind of ludic error, this this levity that we're seeing at this point in the novel when when things could get a bit sentimental. If you come, I have a Donkey Kong machine in my office. Old friends play free. And I love this, of course, too, because this harkens back to their childhood. We're coming full circle. And it also talks about legacy. You know, this is um, Sam's grandfather who has given Sadie this, this game. And they've taken, you know, the trouble of, of shipping this 400-pound game across the country. So, so there is this real sense of commitment with the two of them. And in fact, freight, you know, the Donkey Kong machine is freight um, that was, that was in, a, in an appropriate groove getting all the way across the country. Sam watched Sadie disappear into the connecting tunnel, and then he looked down at the drive. The game was called Ludo Sextus. Sadie had written, handwritten the title. He would know her handwriting anywhere. So there's this really beautiful um, sense of connection between the two of them. And I love the idea of handwriting when so much of what they do together is, is not a tangible handwriting kind of a thing. And Ludo Sextus <clears throat> one of their earlier games was Quintus, I think was, was one of the titles that they were playing with. And it was this, that's the idea of fifth. So Sextus being the sixth of something. So it's this idea of this continuation. So she already had sort of seen this as a continuation. And then of course, Ludo here is this really beautiful echo of this idea of ludic, you know, something that is playful. So I just really have enjoyed digging into this incredible novel with you all. And I hope that taking a look at some of these tinier, but incredibly impactful and intelligent aspects of the novel has been uh, helpful in enriching your appreciation of it. So <clears throat> we might have to go back and read some more Gabrielle Zevin. I hope that you join me in the future to read whatever it is that is striking your fancy. Thanks so much for joining me. Readers, as promised, here are some images to go with our lecture today. This is Gabrielle Zevin. I mean, look at her. I love this sassy sweater she's wearing. I love this look on her face. I love this incredible hair. I love the background. I love everything about this image. Um, she just looks smart and fun and playful and hardworking, all of those things that she says. You guys uh, who've known me a long time know that I cannot get enough of a good dog photo, a good author and dog photo are just, um, for me, just a lot of icing on the cake. And this hilarious pug here, again, speaking of playful, look at how Gabrielle is holding um, this little creature who's looking really not that happy. Uh, I also am really enjoying her dark fingernail polish here and this cute shirt. And then here, another image of her looking amazing and sort of magisterial and commanding and, uh, you know, just, just very sort of mysterious and excellent 
on this incredible couch that is outside. And then this pug, again, just looking so miserable with the ears back here on this fancy couch. It's just too good. It's just, it's too excellent. And this is a shot of Gabrielle's husband, I'm fairly certain. Sometimes my literary sleuthing leads me astray, but I'm fairly certain this is Hans Canosta, Canosa. Uh, and I love the way that he looks so intense and how he's kind of, um, you know, crouched down here just to get a really perfect angle on whatever it is he is directing there. This picture I loved so much because look at this just pixelated wackiness. I have to say that as a uh, non-gamer, I was expecting bigger things. I just, I know that this is rudimentary and I know this was a long, uh, a long ago kind of video game, but I was just like, what is this crazy pixelated situation here? It's hard to imagine this was as engrossing as it used to be, but apparently it was. This is another one of these sort of cozy ones. I'm picturing this as like a precursor to Sims or something where you get to create these worlds, but I love it that there's a score up in the corner there um, with that crazy digital writing uh, and that you have this very kind of rudimentary interior of a house, which is perfectly uh, suited to our lecture today where the house is so important. And then here, of course, we not of course, but here we have an image uh, of I don't know if this is manga, I can't remember. I, I, I do not know much about Japanese animation, but this is one of the images that inspired Ichigo, which is important, obviously, in the novel. And then here, I am so happy that there are good images of this. Uh, you know, the, the foot that Sam suffers with throughout the entire uh, book is really significant in lots of ways. And of course, there's that amazing passage about how he only sees one side of the sign, just kind of never times it correctly, which has everything to do with, you know, chance and the idea of fate and the idea of, of things just sort of happening in certain ways. I also really love the fact that there's no area code on that phone number. It really harkens back to a moment. Speaking of hearkening back to a moment, this is the um, the the place where where uh, our Sadie lives, and it's just so much more hideous than I imagined. I imagined this clown ballerina as just really not being this hideous, <laughs> but I do love the LA feel of the whole thing—the palm trees and the stucco and the kind of weird, like semi-colonial Spanish architecture there. But the 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 crazy clown is really something. And then here we close just with this amazing photograph of this incredibly intelligent and inventive writer. So thank you for tuning in to the Foxed page and I hope you've enjoyed these images. Keep reading. Readers, thank you so much for tuning in today. The lectures really are the lifeblood of the Foxed page, but you should really go to thefoxpage.com. There are five minute recommendations where I will predict in about five minutes whether you should or should not tackle Ulysses or maybe why you shouldn't be so snobby about the recent uh, Leanne Moriarty beach read. There are also talks, no rereading required, on old favorites like Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, or Frog and Toad, which is quite frankly a literary masterpiece. 
There's also this very cool thing where you answer a couple of questions and this cool wheel spins around and spits out a recommendation that I think might be exactly what you need and it might be something that stretches you a little bit. Come and check out thefoxpage.com. Thanks for listening and mostly happy reading.